This is episode nine of season two, where I'm reading two Joseph stories. The next morning, Monday, the administrative pastor called me at home and asked if I'd meet him for coffee. I had no desire to do this. For to me, it was like meeting with the guy who pulled the lever that released the guillotine blade that executed me. And he might have realized this, for he was gentle with me in his insistence that he really needed to meet with me. As much as I didn't want any more meetings, I agreed to meet. We met at what used to be a Gloria Jean's coffee shop in a nearby mall. Once we got our coffee and sat down, he said, there's something I need to tell you, something you need to know about. Expecting more hell, I hesitantly said, Okay. He said, after the morning services, the the senior pastor went home, as he usually does on Sunday afternoons, and he lay down to take a nap. I stopped him right there. The senior pastor had a nap? A nap? He's about to execute me, my wife, and my children over trumped-up charges, and he's able to relax enough to sleep? How is that possible? This reminded me of the SS Nazis who ran the camps, killing men, women, and children by day, going home and having their dinner with their family, playing with or reading to their children, making love with their wife, and going to work the next day, killing men, women, and children. In short, men with absolutely no conscience. The administrative pastor continued, well, in his nap, he had a dream. In the dream, the Lord told him, and he was quoting, do not do this. I almost fell out of my chair. I said, that's exactly what Jesus said said to him in the basketball dream I had. He said, I know. That's why I'm telling you this. I said, how do you know this? He said, because the senior pastors instantly woke up from the dream and was so disturbed that he called each of us and asked asked us to meet with him an hour before the evening service because he had something he needed to share with us. When we all got there, he told us about the dream and what Jesus said to him in the dream. Where he had been very confident about what he was doing, he was now troubled. He asked each of us what we thought he should do. I asked first, did the other guys remember that this is what Jesus said to him in the basketball dream? He said, I don't think so. I wanted to ask him, since he remembered this, if he pointed it out to the others. I didn't, for I knew he hadn't out of fear of losing his job. So I asked, what did you guys tell the senior pastor? He said, the worship pastor and I both said that we were uncomfortable with what he was doing. However, the senior associate pastor and the youth pastor both said that the senior pastor's dream was from his conscience. What conscience? And that he should have and that he should ignore it and move forward with his plan because you, meaning me, needed it. Well, what the administrative pastor and the worship pastor seemed uh, to do to do something right, they really didn't. If they'd been men and men of integrity, they would have told the senior pastor that if he moved forward, they would resign. That would have stopped the senior pastor in his tracks. But they were cowards 
who were willing to abandon their falsely accused brother while acting like they had some integrity. This is similar to what Reuben did with Joseph. The senior associate pastor, the youth pastor, were the youngest men on the pastoral team and almost never had any real discernment from the Spirit, something the youth pastor knew very well about himself and something the administrative pastor was too arrogant to even admit, even when it was obvious. So despite the split vote and despite the youthfulness of, and the arrogance of the do-it side, and despite the, of the fulfillment of my basketball dream, and despite doing something similar to what the king did with Jeremiah's warnings, Jeremiah 36, the senior pastor moved forward and unleashed terrible things, which included a powerful demon upon me, upon my wife, and upon our three children. Maybe you're familiar with Jesus' instructions in Matthew 18, 15 through 17, concerning how to handle a situation in which some, someone has seriously sinned against you. So, for example, after addressing the sin issue with the person, if they refuse to repent, then take someone else to also address the person's sin issue. And if necessary, then take two others to address the, the person's sin issue. Form of this occurred. First, one of the leaders in the FNG went to the senior pastor and addressed his sin concerning what he did to me. The senior pastor blew him off. When an older man who was a father figure to me also went to the senior pastor to address the wrong he had done to me and to my family, the senior pastor blew him off as well. In addition, my mother, who was in her mid-70s at the time, went to see the administrative pastor. She confronted him with his silence in defending me of the things he knew were false. He became so agitated that he threw her out of his office, angrily saying, you want me to lose my job? Clearly, he had kept his silence out of fear of experiencing the same fate I did, as well as the first music pastor. About a week later, he apologized to my mother in a card he mailed her. My mother had the testosterone to confront this man to his face. All he could muster before an old woman was mailing her an apology. What he should have done was to come over to my mother's apartment, stand before her, and make his apology. Then he should have gone to the senior pastor and confronted him, including a threat to expose him to the congregation if real actions weren't taken to make things right with me and my wife and our children. This would have been courageous integrity. This is something he never had. This would have been real repentance, turning from evil and turning toward what's godly. But this is something he's never done. A few weeks later, I received two phone calls. One from the original music pastor, who the senior pastor had run off, and one from the man who was a father figure to me. They both told me they had received letters which explained what I was being accused of and the actions the pastors took. In other words, a letter that essentially blackballed me. I called the administrative pastor to find out what was going on. He told me that the senior associate pastor sent out some 50 of these letters despite the administrative pastors advising him not to do so. It was an obvious attempt to save their jobs to justify their actions in the eyes of the leaders of other ministries. 
I was now officially done as far as the full-time ministry was concerned. But even worse, because these letters went out to various leaders in the area, when I tried to find a new church home for my family and I, none of these leaders were welcoming, much less helpful. I had been branded unsubmissive to authority. Probably more than any other issue, this was is the kiss of death. For no leader wants a guy like this in his church. Most leaders in this country are very insecure. Thus, the last kind of person they want among them is someone who has been tattooed unsubmissive to authority. Such a label is far worse than if I had had sex with the church secretary. So as of this writing, neither the senior pastor, the senior associate pastor, nor any of the other three pastors have ever acknowledged the wickedness of what they did to me, to my wife, and to our children. Neither have any of them made any true and honest attempt to repent and to make things right with us. They did what they had to do to save their jobs and their reputations as being supposedly godly men, just as Joseph's brothers claimed they were honest men. One year to the month later, someone sent me a book titled The Subtle Power of Spiritual Abuse, Recognizing and Escaping Spiritual Manipulation and False Spiritual Authority Within the Church by David Johnson and Jeff Van Vondren. As I looked at the title, I was befuddled, for it was stating an issue with which I was unfamiliar. I was familiar with the issue of abuse, for in all the pastoral counseling I had done, I dealt with people who had been and were being abused. But spiritual abuse? What's that? So I began by considering each word of the title, beginning with this, with the idea of this issue being subtle, as in the shadows, behind closed doors, like what Joseph accused his brothers of, that of being spies who traffic in the shadows, never out in the open. Next is the word power. This issue has a very profound power to it, a power that is difficult to fight against, just as Joseph's brothers had a power over him that he couldn't fight against. Then the word spiritual. This issue is not physical, it is spiritual, which can include the emotions in one's thinking. But further, people can die from physical abuse, and people can also, quote, die in other ways from spiritual abuse. And lastly, the word abuse. Is there behavior more opposite of the behaviors that flow from love? There's a great selfishness in abusing, for abusers abuse to satisfy only themselves. Abusers even tell their victims that they love them, or that they care, or that they're doing what they're doing because it was best for the victim. But again, the reality is they only love themselves, thus they only do what is best for them. Once I started reading this book, I could not put it down until I had read it completely through in one sitting. For me, it was as if the authors had placed hidden cameras and microphones among us pastors, recorded and videotaped us, and from this information, wrote their book. For just about everything they expressed in this book was going on within the pastoral team, flowing mostly from the senior pastor and the senior associate pastor. 
Although I was blown away by what I read, I had trouble trusting that the issue of abuse applied to me. What I hadn't and didn't grasp at the time was that the repeated abuse I'd experienced from the senior pastor and the senior associate pastor, without even realizing it, had made me think like a victim of, of abuse, which is basically this. I've done something wrong, thus I deserve what's happening to me. On the one hand, I knew what the senior pastor and senior associate pastor were doing to me was wrong, but because of my victim of abuse, thinking, there was something nagging, there was some nagging doubt. Were they wrong, or was I wrong? Thus, I felt like I needed someone else to look at this book and tell me whether the issue of spiritual abuse was what the senior pastor and the senior pa associate pastor had done and had been doing. So I called the godliest man I knew in the congregation at that time, who happened to be the chairman of the deacons. I asked him if he could meet, if we could meet, telling him that I had something I wanted to talk about. He was glad I had called, for he wanted to talk with me as well. He suggested we meet Saturday morning at a nearby restaurant for breakfast. From the moment we sat down, before any small talk, before I got to what I wanted to say to him, he began apologizing to me. He admitted that he knew at the kangaroo court before the deacons that what the senior pastor was accusing me of was false and what he planned to do to me was wrong, was thus wrong. However, and this is what he was apologizing for, he said he just did not know how to help me. He said that he too was intimidated by the senior pastor. There really was a plethora of people who were uncomfortable with the senior pastor. I very much appreciated his apology. And I told him that although I knew to, that although I kept, uh, I knew to keep my head down and my mouth shut at that travesty of a trial, that I glanced around a few times and saw in the eyes of a few men that they knew that what the senior pastor was doing was wrong and that he was one of those men, which is the reason I contacted him, for I trusted him. I also told him that even though I saw that these few men knew what was happening was wrong and that I wished they would stand and defend me, I knew that none of them had the backbone to do it. Not because they were necessarily weak, but because the senior pastor was so powerful. The simple fact is that the same spiritual abuse that sought to control, manipulate, and even intimidate me, controlled, manipulated, and intimidated many others. After this man's humble confession and apology, I told him I had read Johnson and Van Vondren's book. And although it seemed to me that there was some important truth in it, I wasn't sure. Thus, I told this man that I needed his opinion of what the authors were saying in this book because I didn't trust my own. I asked him if he was willing to read it and to give me his perspective. When he agreed to do this, I handed him a copy. I then acknowledged that this man was busy with his company, and thus I did not expect a quick response from him as to what he thought about the things this book talked about. I asked him if, he had, if a month was enough time for him to read the book. He said he would certainly try. Some few days later, he called me and asked me if we could meet for breakfast again because he had read the book and wanted very much to talk about it. I was surprised that he read it so quickly. So we met. This time he was even more apologetic and blown away by the insights of these authors concerning spiritual abuse. He said there was no question in his mind that there had been and were 
many of the issues the authors discuss going on within the pastoral team. He was so concerned that he told me he planned to have a meeting with the deacons about this. Some weeks later, this man called me. Immediately, I noticed a difference in his tone of voice. He told me that he had met with the deacons as well as with the pastoral team and that the consensus was that I was not being forgiving to the senior pastor. I was shocked at this reversal. It was like telling an abused wife that she wasn't forgiving her abusing husband because for the umpteenth time he had apologized. Certainly forgiveness is important. However, how many times should an abused wife forgive her abusing husband when he finally severely injures her or the children or when he kills her and or the children? While forgiveness is important, so is real repentance. And not merely repeated apologies with no real intention of real change. Forgiveness is important, but so is real repentance. In other words, words are cheap. Actions matter. This is true concerning any sin. Words are cheap. Actions matter. But certainly concerning the sin of abuse. I suspected that this well-intentioned man had experienced the senior pastors and the senior associate pastors juggernaut defense of what they had done, which conveniently left out lots of things, such as the dream the senior pastor had, in which the Lord told him not to do what he planned to do, as well as the number of things he had done to me and to my wife. That would have exposed them. When I questioned him about his change of perspective, he avoided answering my questions, keeping the conversation short. It was very much not like him, for he was rather distant, almost as if he was doing something he did not agree with, but was compelled to do against his better judgment. Was he being pressured? Did the senior pastor work his magic of manipulation to once again avoid being confronted with what he'd done? I don't know. What I do know is that this man was not himself that day on the phone with me. And not too long afterwards, I found out that he and his family had left the church. In fact, lots of people left this congregation, sensing that what had happened was not right, and that the senior pastor, as well as the pastoral team, were covering things up. About a year after the events of the spring of summer, the spring and summer of 1995, I received a letter from the senior pastor. When I began to open it, it seemed that Jesus stopped me. He reminded me of some of the issues the authors of that book had expressed about spiritual abuse. Thus, I felt warned to be cautious. So I left the, un, I left the unopened letter sit for several days, giving Jesus time to talk with me about it. And in that time, the Spirit led me to the story of Joseph in Genesis. Even though I was familiar with the story, it had been a while since I'd read it. So I took my time, pausing in spots where it seemed Jesus was drawing my attention. At the end, several things stood out to me, which I read in the first three episodes of this podcast. However, as for what to do with this unopened letter from the senior pastor, what Joseph did to his brothers in an attempt to discover whether or not they had changed, and thus whether or not it was safe to reveal himself to them, Jesus seemed to say that this was something I needed to do in this situation. 
I needed to test the senior pastor's words. Since I didn't open the, the letter, I had no idea what was in it. But since words are cheap and actions matter, I wasn't interested in whatever his words were. I needed to see actions. Joseph wanted a healthy relationship with his brothers, at least one as, a, as, as healthy as possible with them. And in order to do this, he knew there had to be some amount of conviction, remorse, and repentance, and amend-making on their part. Not a sorrow that they'd been caught, not a sorrow that to avoid the consequences they rightly deserved for the incredibly wicked thing they'd done to their brother, not a sorrow which sought to minimize or to avoid being held accountable for their actions, but rather a godly sorrow that brings repentance is what Joseph was looking for. In other words, he needed to see actions of real remorse, which produced a real repentance, and in that repentance, the willingness to do right, all of which might make it possible to have some degree of a restored relationship. For, those, for Joseph, this was not about some unforgiveness he still harbored against them. For Joseph, he simply was not willing to settle, compromise, to risk himself with these guys, which he could easily have done by just giving them what they came for, sending them on their way, and never disclosing himself to them. He wanted some healthy restoration with his brothers. But again, this would only be possible if these men felt convicted of the terrible thing they had done to their brother. Therefore, in order to try to determine the condition of his brothers' hearts, Joseph tested them and then watched their responses, actions, to his tests. In fact, he tested them several times, as if like a doctor wanting to make sure of his diagnosis. Were these sick men repenting of their sicknesses, or were they still trying to keep their sick and wicked actions in the dark? With this advice from Jesus, I sent the senior pastor's letter back to him unopened. I did this to see what he would do, his actions. Would he persist in trying to reach out to me? Would he do whatever he needed to do to reach out to me? Would, would this be with repentance or some more manipulation to save himself? Further, knowing that his actions had created a huge distrust in me toward him, would he recognize this? And would he submit to me by putting the process in my hands, taking, th taking things out of his control? After all, when a person is repenting, truly repenting, especially of something like abuse, they are not then trying to control that process. They should be willing to do whatever it takes to make things right. All a truly repentant person wants is to repent, to make things right with those he hurt. He is not in any way trying to save himself. He is not in any way trying to minimize what happens to him. For he has a sense that he deserves whatever happens to him. For he is in touch with the pain his actions caused others. That is, empathy for the other person's pain. There's a healthy principle about accountability. At a level a person sinned, that is a level he or she is corrected. If the person sinned one-on-one, -on -one, he or she is corrected privately between themselves. If the person sinned publicly, 
he or she is, is dealt with publicly. For the person who sinned publicly, as a senior pastor had, to try to deal, to try to deal with this privately is to minimize any consequence to himself. This would be evidence that his repentance is not real. He's trying to avoid being dealt with in a way that his public sin should be dealt with. And just one of the reasons this approach is important is that when done correctly, the fear of the Lord is the result. The leader is humbled, which is very important for leaders, and the people see justice, which is important for them to see. Again, forgiveness is important, but so is justice, especially within the church, and especially when it involves a leader. For leaders are held to a stricter judgment, not a softer one. So says James 3.1. Thank <laughs> you.